welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their filmic adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. All right, so we have a very interesting pairing this week. Precision of language, please, Joe. We have a good <laughs> book and a terrible <laughs> film. Yes, we do. We're talking about The Giver, folks. Lois Lowry's famous 1993 novel and a film that didn't need to happen. No, a terrible (laughs) film from 2014 by a not terrible director. Like this is a person who has a lot of credentials to his name. And a wildly not terrible cast. No, yeah. Everything should have come together for this and yet the film is a giant mess. So, yeah. 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 So, Philip Noyce, we've got some bones to pick with you, but I actually think it's more the two screenwriters, Michael Michnick and Robert B. Wide. They will maybe need to atone for some cinema <laughs> sins here. Quite a few, yeah. Um, before we get to figuring out how to talk about something we really liked and something we really didn't at the same time, mm-hmm. did you do your homework this week, Joe? I did, yes. Yay. What you got for us? I'm going all the way back to our first YA forecast that we did way back in January. So I finally managed to pick up Hot Dog Girl from the library. Yay, that looked so good. Was it good? Tell me it was good. So I haven't finished it. I'm about 100 pages in Mm -hmm. and it's very cute. I think this is maybe a little bit more up your alley than mine. Okay. But for people who don't remember, allow me to refresh your memory. So I'm just going to read the blurb on the jacket. Eloise Lou Parker is determined to have the absolute best, most impossibly epic summer of her life. There are just a few things standing in her way. She's landed a job at Magic Castle Playland as a giant dancing hot dog. Her crush, the dreamy diving pirate Nick, already has a girlfriend who is literally the princess of the park. But Lou's never liked anyone, guy or otherwise, this much before. And now she wants a chance at her own happily ever after. Her best friend, Seely, the carousel operator, has always been up for anything, but she's decidedly not on board when it comes to Lou's quest to set her up with the perfect girl or Lou's scheme to get close to Nick. And, as it turns out, this will be the last summer at Magic Castle Playland ever, unless she can find a way to stop it from closing. Oh, see, it sounds great. Yeah. It sounds very Adventureland. A little bit, yeah. So this is the debut novel from Jennifer Dugan, and she's got a really good readable style. The plot, as you may have gathered, is a little bit of wacky shenanigans, a little (laughs) bit of misunderstandings. There's a ruse that is introduced about like 50 pages in, wherein our main character, Lou, she basically propositions her best friend to play her secret girlfriend so that she can get closer to her crush Nick Mm. and it's pretty clearly telegraphing that she and her best friend will end up together Mm -hmm. and I would actually argue that that's the most successful part of the book is the way that it just kind of nonchalantly handles Lou's bisexuality and Celie's queerness mostly because like you're reading the first section of the book 
like you know that Lou has a crush on Nick because she talks about him. She's, you know, always eyeing him up whenever she sees him around the park and so on. But then they just casually talk about how she ended up taking a French class to get closer to a girl and the relationship was a disaster and then she almost failed the class. And haha, wasn't that a weird situation? And you're like, oh, wait, what? <laughs> I love that. You just snuck bisexuality into the mix and it's fine. Like, nobody cares. Nobody makes a big deal out of it. Like, she isn't out to her dad, and that's a a bit of a source of tension, but it's not in the way that she doesn't think her dad would understand. It's that he's a single father, and she doesn't Mm. really know how to talk about girl stuff or sex stuff with him. Right. Yeah, so it's... It sounds refreshing, and just it's sort of nonchalant. Yeah, yeah. I would definitely recommend it. It's giving me a little bit of To All the Boys I've Loved Before kind of vibe. So it's not redefining the genre Mm -hmm. in that sense, but it's a very enjoyable, easy to read book. And yeah, it does have that just really progressive kind of forward thinking approach to sexuality. Yay. Yeah. So that's Hot Dog Girl by Jennifer Dugan. Fantastic. I read a book that I think you will really dig the premise of. And I apologize for the crinkly noises because it's a library hardcover and I have it on a hard table next to me. So (laughs) So, some fully art going on. Yeah, seriously. It's called Rain and Delilah's Midnight Matinee by Jeff Zentner. This sounds familiar. So Jeff Zentner's breakout was a novel called The Serpent King, which sounds like it's going to be some kind of like dystopia or some kind of fantasy, but it's not at all. He writes these books mostly set in sort of rural Tennessee. And what I like about Zentner as sort of a different voice in YA right now is that he writes a lot about poverty. Like most of his characters are lower middle class or working class or sort of outright poor and struggling. And he writes about teens kind of coming from that perspective, which I find really refreshing because as we've talked about on this show a lot. It's a lot of wealth. A lot there's of a lot of wealth, right? And especially YA written about white mm-hmm. protagonists tends yeah. to be just like this sort of money is never a conversation. And I don't think that's the normal experience for most kids. No, it's not a reality for a lot of people. And so Rain and Delilah's Midnight Matinee is the story of two best friends, and their names are Delia and Josie, but they have stage names. Josie's stage name is Rain, and Delia's stage name is Delilah because they host a public access horror show on their local public access TV station. Yes! Right? It's It's such a neat premise. And they've been really successful at it in terms of what it is. They are syndicated in six markets. Um, They air at like midnight in their hometown and in six other cities across the U.S. Okay. And Josie's dream has always been to be on TV, but like for real. Yeah, like proper TV. (laughs) Exactly. So she's in it as like, I mean, she's in it because this is her best friend and they do it together, but she's in it because she likes getting the experience, the on-camera thing, and she's really good at it. But horror is not really her thing. Okay. So she's the you. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Delia is making the show, not because she particularly likes attention. She doesn't. She shies away from it in most other aspects of her life. But Delia, her dad left when she was really young. And the only thing that he left behind were these sort of stacks and stacks and stacks of VHS recorded horror movies from these same kinds of TV shows that her dad used to watch. 
those are the movies that she shows and she kind of has this fantasy in her head that someday her dad's going to be flipping through the channels on some some station where they are syndicated and he's going to see her right so she has this whole like wish fulfillment thing going on and the crux of the plot is that there is they get invited to a con in florida they get invited to shiver con so this horror convention and they're going to go and try to meet with a producer to kind of take their show big but they're struggling with these other motivations for the trip on Josie's part, the only way she could get her parents to agree to let her go on this trip is if she agrees that if this doesn't work out, she's done with the show and she's going to focus on like a real internship somewhere. Right. Something proper, right? Exactly. Meanwhile, Delia's sort of secret motivation that she doesn't tell Josie about is that her dad lives in Florida and she has hired a PI. She hired a cheap PI, so all she got was an email address and his new name. But she's figured out that he's in Florida. He's changed his name. He obviously never wanted her to find him, but she wants to go. So they have these competing motivations. Their lives are heading off in different directions. Josie's been accepted to university. Her family is middle class, much more comfortable. Delia's going to be going to the local community college. She almost didn't graduate high school. She and her mom live in a pretty rundown trailer. Her mom struggles with mental health and has a hard time sort of keeping the bills paid. And they've just graduated high school. So their lives are bent to head off in different directions and they head off on this road trip to Florida. It's great. It's full of all kinds of like tropes with horror fans the men especially who write into their show are super gross occasionally sweet but often super gross and they deal with that sort of that aspect of things there's a boy a surprising boy he doesn't come between them or anything there's just a surprising boy for Josie um to be interested in and uh it's just I don't know it's it's interesting um the tagline that Jeff Zentner has given about this book when he's been on tour with it is that he says it's an ode to the things that friends create together, and it's an ode to people who try their best and come up short. Oh, wow. Yeah. and so realistic. It is realistic, and I think that that's the strength of the book, is that it's a lot more like real teen lives and a lot more like how these stories end in real life, right? So I won't give anything away, but that gives you a sense of the tone. It's also quite funny. It's funnier than his other two books. Josie and Delia have a really great chemistry, and they... Do you remember how when we read Paper Towns, we were talking about how like... It didn't feel like they were real friends. Yeah, and that like when we had those moments of like joke sparring, it kind of fell flat. Right. This is a book where the building of jokes on top of jokes as like friends do works really well. It's often like actually laugh out loud funny. And Rainbow Rowell blurbed it. She's the author of Eleanor and Park and Fangirl. And she said, quote, anyone can break your heart, but Jeff Zentner can also make you laugh out loud. And that's true. Like the book has those two sort of emotional poles. So anyway, uh, Rain and Delilah's Midnight Matinee. It's brand new. It's a 2019 book. It's out now. And that's by Jeff Zentner. Nice. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> so. Transitioning into the giver is really hard. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Now, I feel like maybe we should be a little bit upfront with our personal histories because I know that you expressed a lot of frustration when you were watching the movie, but I feel like there's a certain element of nostalgia and childhood emotion wrapped up in the way you feel about the book. Definitely. I read The Giver for the first time in when it was brand new and I was in like grade five or six, we read it as a class read, like it was a class assigned text when it was quite brand new. And I really 
I really enjoyed it in that context. But then when I visit, revisited it again, gosh, Joe, I think it was in that children's literature class we took together. Did we do The Giver in that class? We sure did. Yeah. Yes. So that was when I revisited it again. And I loved it. Rereading it at sort of the cusp of adulthood when you're suddenly, you feel like the blinders have just come off and you've figured out that... <laughs> the world is not what you thought it was. <laughs> yeah. It was a really powerful book to read in that moment. And so as the sequels came out, I read them. And I like them, but I really have a, a strong affection for what Lois Lowry's doing in The Giver. In addition, I think it's a really well-written book. Like, I think it's one of the more literary books that we've looked at and has a really strong literary sensibility that works really well on the page. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about how maybe that's part of the undoing. Part of the, of the problem, yeah. Mm. But yeah, so it's true. I was texting with Joe as I was watching the film yesterday and I and Joe was like we're gonna have to try to watch it like though we didn't already know the book and I don't know if I'm capable of achieving that level of objectivity I just feel like every choice they made in making the film was like incorrect yes <laughs> yeah and so as a result I'm not sure I'm not sure how I would feel about the film if I had never read the book other films we've watched I felt more capable of of assessing that than I do here Right. And I'm not sure why that is beyond affection. I'm not even sure if it's nostalgia. I am um, reading it again this time. It was still it was still so powerful to me. Yeah. I yeah. I don't I don't know if it's just nostalgia or if, it, if it's actually nostalgia or if it's just like a deep affection, but I'm struggling with my ability to comment <laughs> on the film in any sort of coherent way. Yeah. Maybe when we get there we'll just do a big vent and then we can work through it. <laughs> Welcome to our therapy session. Right, yes. <laughs> Welcome to the Giver Support Group. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, maybe first let's start with the book, though. Well, what's your history with the book? Do you have the same right. deep-seated affection for it that I do? Uh, it's interesting. So I can't remember the first time I read it, but I definitely read it before that class that you mm-hmm. mentioned. And mm-hmm. I remember not liking it. It's hard to pinpoint an exact feeling for it, but I remember not enjoying the ambiguity of the Mm. end of the book and feeling Mm. not ripped off, but owed something. I wanted more closure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think part of it is that I was younger and I was less willing to accept this idea that you could have ambiguity and you could allow readers to make up their own mind. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know that the central question of what happens at the end of the book is actually revealed in the sequels, but Mm -hmm. I literally didn't even know there were sequels until I started researching this episode. So (laughs) for me, The Giver was always a standalone text that ended on a bit of a dark, ambiguous note. And then when we we reread it for that class, I ended up gaining a newfound appreciation for it. And I think that's helpful when you study something and when you Mm -hmm. actually are forced to think through it and not just read it and have an emotional reaction. It's helpful. Yeah. And then I really enjoyed it on the reread for this. So I think this is my third time. I noticed a lot more about the language and I completely agree with you. It's an inherently readable text. Like Mm -hmm. it's just, it's a joy to read Lois Lowry's writing. Mm -hmm. Like she's good Mm -hmm. in that way. And I appreciated the text for what it actually is, not what I wanted it to be, which is a problem that I struggle with frequently. I'm always like, well, what if this had to happen instead? And (laughs) part of it is clamping down and saying, this is what you have. What do you think of it? What is it that you should be taking from it? So It's interesting that you say that you didn't enjoy it when you were first 
reading it because I was reading some like some scholarly work on the giver and there's actually surprisingly not as much as I had expected to find. Mm-hmm. There's also a lot of people like when you read the reviews, not the academic work, but the mm-hmm. reviews when it first came out, it was actually a very mixed reception, which surprised me because I thought that this was a beloved text. And I think it is to a lot of people, but I don't think everybody thinks that it's accomplishing everything it should, or Mm -hmm. I think it gets pitched at too young a reader. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, it's interesting because that choice to have the protagonist be 11 on the cusp of 12 means that it falls squarely into what we consider middle grade fiction. And I certainly read it for the first time as a middle grade student, and I think it gets assigned at the middle grade level. Which is, I think, when I read it the first time, too. Mm-hmm. But the themes are, are strongly new adult, or yes. sorry, young adult, I would yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's, I think, why I found such an affinity for it when I read it in second year university. It was like, I'm questioning the world, and so is this book. And this mm-hmm. book is giving me a sort of vocabulary for the sense of betrayal that I feel as I learn, you know, whether it's certain parts of our national history or certain realities of social class, like things that you start to learn for the first time when you leave the bubble of whatever it is you grew up in. Yeah. There's a lot of parallels there. And it's interesting because this review article that I was reading was by a bunch of teachers who assign it at the middle grade level. Okay. Because they're obligated to, you know, how in the States, the curriculum is a lot more like strict. And so whatever state this is, the giver is the text that you read. And I think it was grade five or six. Mm, So young. So young. And what they found in this They did like a questionnaire with the students um, over a number of different classes. And what they found was consistently more than half of the class reported not liking the book. Right. Consistently, no more than 20% of the class felt able to connect with Jonas. Really? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that Jonas is like on the cusp of adulthood as it's defined by his society. And I don't know if that resonates at that young an age. No. Even though that's how old he is. Yeah. Yeah. I get that too. That's actually the big thing that came to me this time. And again, we'll get there when we talk about the film. (laughs) But I think part of this is that he's 12, but he's really going on 18 Mm -hmm. or 19 or 20 or something like that. I'd be interested to know, like I didn't do a lot of research about Lois Lowry's actual process for writing this book or what she tried to achieve with it. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious about the why like why she picked this particular age because it does feel too young if you're looking at that as the target demograph for who's going to read this book I think you've nailed it totally on the head this is a book for people who are transitioning into adulthood it's just that in the book adulthood is at 12. Yeah and it's interesting because you and I were texting about this the other day that the fact that this society transitions to adulthood basically at 12 or at least to adult responsibilities and you find out in the sequels that the same is true for like the women who become birth mothers. They have their first babies at like 14, 15. Yeah. So this is a society that reaches maturity at that age. And that what comes with that is a level of naivete and a level of willingness to accept the rote narrative of the society that makes this kind of authoritarianism possible, right? Yes. And we'll talk about this, but they've aged the characters up in the film. And one of the reasons why that's a problem is that they just seem stupid. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's so much harder to believe that they could have been fooled by this system. Yes. Like, oh, really? You were just in the dark for the entirety of your teenage year? Oh, okay. Okay. 
Yes. So I guess I should I should talk about what all of that is, right, before we get any further. Sure. Maybe give us a, an overview. I will try. Um, okay, so The Giver uh, was published in 1993. It's a novel by Lois Lowry. It did win the Newbery Medal in 1994, which is one of the highest awards in children's literature. And as of its 20th anniversary, so as of, what would that be, 2013, uh, it had sold more than 10 million copies worldwide. It's on reading lists in lots of places. It's also number 11 or 12 on the most frequently challenged books for the American Library Association's banned books list. Yeah, I'm not surprised by that. So yes, it is well regarded. It is well thought of. It is also very controversial. The book takes place in what on the surface seems like a utopian novel uh, or an utopian society, but as with almost every utopian society in fiction, as you learn a little bit more about it, you discover that it's really a dystopia. There's literally no such thing as a utopia no. in any of these books, are there? <laughs> no. Maybe I mean, there's just no narrative to be had in I was going to say, like, we live in a perfect society. The end. <laughs> <laughs> Everything was great. Turn the page. Yep. That is all. Thank you. <laughs> so... What is going on in the society is that they have made the choice to remove pain, conflict, emotion from their society, and as a result, achieve an ideal of sameness. And this this sameness is this important time period that they live in. They sort of refer to this as the time of sameness. And there is a before, but the people who live in the community don't remember that time before. They don't have written records of it. They don't talk about the time before. This achievement of sameness comes with a giving up of sort of the collective memory of what a different way of living might look like. And our protagonist is an 11-year-old boy about to turn 12 named Jonas. Jonas has parents or a parental unit uh, and he has a younger sister. But the reason why it's important that he's about to turn 12 is that in this society, everyone sort of progresses through the stages at an annual ceremony and he is about to turn 12, which means he's about to find out what his role in the society will be. Effectively, he's about to be assigned his job. Yeah, and which with determines that, everything in your yes. life. Yeah, absolutely. It determines whether or not you'll be able to have a, to apply to have a, a spouse, whether or not you'll be able to apply then to have children, what your status in the society will be. And it's all determined. You don't like apply for the job you want. It's all determined by the leadership of the community, the guardians who have been observing you your whole life. And so Jonas at the ceremony of 12 finds out that he is going to be less chosen for a role than he has sort of, or he's not going to be really assigned a role. He's been sort of chosen, like capital C chosen. And the role that he has been assigned is to be the new receiver of memory. So it's very much like other science fiction stories, like the ones who walk away from Omelas, this idea that one person has to bear the pain so that the rest of the society can live in a utopic bliss. And that's really what's happening here. The receiver of memory is the person who holds on to, yes, lots of positive memories. Things like anything that could differentiate has been extracted from the society. So there's no color, there's no music, there's no emotion. So all of those things are things that the receiver of memory gets to hold on to. But they also have to hold on to the memory of elephants being poached and war and children being removed from their parents mm -hmm. and starvation starvation and physical pain which there is none because the populace is basically 
kind of drugged into basically a, a sameness. Yeah. So all of this is what Jonas enters into in his 12th year of life. And alongside this plot is also a subplot that's brewing. Jonas's father works at the nurturing center, so children are not born to the people who raise them. They're born in a birthing center. They go to a nurturing center where they are cared for by people for whom that is their job. And then they get assigned to their families. But there's one little baby, Gabriel, who's sort of on the cusp of being acceptable. And the thing, the thing that makes him challenging is that he cries through the night, which mm-hmm. is a thing babies do. Um, and so... <laughs> Gabriel's father, who works at the nurturing center, has been given a special dispensation to try, by having Gabriel at home with him through the night, to try to get him to a place where he can be placed with a family. Unfortunately, as Jonas is learning to do the role of the receiver of memory, he ends up having to spend one night not at home with his family because of a whole constellation of things that happen, among which he learns that when the community talks about being released to elsewhere, they're actually talking about being killed. So when someone requests a release to elsewhere, they aren't moved to another community, they are killed. When babies don't meet the standard for sleeping through the night, they are released to elsewhere, which means that they are killed. And when elderly people come to the end of their useful lives, they are released to elsewhere, which does not mean moving to some sort of happy Retirement, no retirement home. <laughs> no. It just means you get killed. Yes. So, all that's missing is learning that these people get turned into food. <laughs> God. And Jonas finds all this out, and what he discovers is that his father, you know, there's twins born. You can't have two people who are the same, which is kind of weird in a society that idealizes sameness that you can't have twins. Yes, but you have to remember that the reason given is because it would be confusing. Like, that's how childlike and simplistic this ideal society that they've created is, is that they literally can't identify two things that look the same. And Jonas is permitted by the giver, the person who's sharing the memories with him, to view surveillance footage of his father releasing one of these two twins, which is decided by how much they weigh. The one who weighs less is released to elsewhere. And Jonas watches this happen and realizes what it means to be released to elsewhere, but also that his father is so trained to be sort of an automaton by this society that he doesn't even seem to realize that the baby is been terminated like he acts like it's all really positive even though the baby's not moving and he puts him in like a crate and then he puts him through a hole in a wall and yet there's no grief no mourning because there's no emotion because as much as his father is a good quote-unquote nurturer he's not capable of feeling love mm-hmm. can i interject for a moment yes I've often wondered, and I don't know that Lowry gives us a clear solution, but I've wondered if, so they also had to take daily medications mm-hmm. to stop them from having stirrings, which of course are <laughs> sexy dreams that would connote adulthood and yes. having, basically they're, they're removed from any kind of sexual connotations in that regard. It's a boner-free society. You betcha. But I've also wondered if the pills have something to do with numbing them from other sorts of emotion, because no one really displays anger or grief or sadness or any of those kinds of things. Yeah, I think we're supposed to know that they do because of how much 
when Jonas makes the decision to stop taking his pills, it's not just sexual feelings that come back to him, right? I mean, that's why he feels it's anger and it's love for Gabriel, which is what causes him to ultimately, the climax of the book is that he discovers that Gabriel is going to be released to elsewhere because Gabriel can't sleep through the night, which I'm looking at my child on the monitor right now. Like this kid is two and he has never slept through the night. Anyway, fine. Right. We actually do kind of treat childhood this way in a lot of ways in our society. Like we have this notion of like sleep training and that like Mm -hmm. you as an adult can have control over a child's schedule. You have to put them on a schedule. You have to have them sleep trained. You know, they have to stop nursing by this point. Yep. Potty training. If they're not verbal by a certain age, you got to send them to a specialist. Yeah. I was having so many echoes of like when you have a baby, the only thing people want to know when your baby's really little It's like, hey, does he sleep through the night? And I went through this phase where like he was not sleeping through the night. I mean, I I exaggerate. He sleeps decently now, but he's not a great sleeper. He's never going to be one of those kids who just goes down for 12 hours. Right. But like, it's the only thing people wanted to talk about when he was small. And when you're struggling with that, man, talk about feeling like you have failed. Not just your child, but the entire society by not producing a good sleeper. And I always wanted to be like... Yeah, he's a crappy sleeper, but he already had a sense of humor at like five months. He was like making people laugh and like laughing in response. You know, like I want to be like, but my kid does all these other cool things other than sleep. Can we talk about that? No, no. No, Brenna, nobody cares. (laughs) Come back to the sameness, Brenna. And that's the thing. Like, I think that part of it resonated for me this time reading it in a way that obviously it had no reason to resonate with me before. Anyway, so Gabriel is going to be released elsewhere and Jonas and the Giver had already been having these conversations about whether or not they could release these memories to the community and see if they could sort of reshape the community. And that requires the person who holds the memory to leave the community. And they know this because the last person chosen to receive the memories couldn't handle it, I mean, effectively, and she requested release to elsewhere. And upon her release, certain memories came back to the community. Yeah, they messed them up real bad. (laughs) But before they can execute this plan, Jonas finds out about Gabriel. And so that accelerates everything. And basically, he takes Gabriel and he gets on his bicycle and he leaves. And the book ends with this famously ambiguous ending. Jonas bundles Gabriel to his body and finds a sled, which is the very first memory that the giver ever gave him, was this memory of a sled. Mm -hmm. He gets on the sled and he slides off Towards like a light. Towards a a suggestion that he might Mm -hmm. be moving towards a civilization or that he's reached his destination. Mm -hmm. But then you also, so for me. He's pretty much hypothermic at that point. Yeah, so he might be hallucinating. And the fact that he magically finds a sled, which, as you said, happens to be the very first memory that he got. And it was a happy memory, right? Mm -hmm. Like the giver gave him something warm and nice, something unique. Mm -hmm. So there's every suggestion that he actually dies out in Mm -hmm. the community with this baby in the snow and i have a very clear memory of my whether it was grade five or six class and my teacher did a poll who thinks that jonas and gabriel got to a community and literally everyone except me raised their hand and she was like who (laughs) thinks gabriel died and i'm like yep um are you gonna call my parents (laughs) because I'm a realist. I'm a realist five-year-old, and I understand how death works. I will never... I have that memory etched into my brain every time I get to the end of the book. Just me looking around the class and being like, yo, he dead, people. Yeah. 
Whereas me, I remember feeling <laughs> so confronted by this idea that you could kill a child. Mm. I think that's one of the things I struggled with is I, I wanted to know, is he dead or does he make it? Mm-hmm. And it was a challenge to figure out exactly like which way I was leaning towards. But I, like you, was pretty sure that it didn't have a happy ending. Mm-hmm. And that really confronted me. It was so unexpected. It never occurred to me that the book could have an unhappy ending. Mm. But then to lack that sense of closure was so upsetting. I remember hating the book and telling people that it was like the worst thing I had ever read and that people (laughs) shouldn't read it. Joe's the one man censorship board for his school. (laughs) This book doesn't reassure me. Don't read it. Burn it. I mean, it's an incredibly powerful ending for that reason, right? Like, yeah. so either, because like, none of the options are actually good. Like, maybe, no. maybe Jonas and Gabriel get to a community, but that means that there's been another option all this time, right? There's been yeah. all this suffering and all of these babies and old people and sad people killed off for no reason because there was something else out there so even if jonas and gabriel get a happy ending the community do they we don't know no yeah we're given some answers not in like the first sequel sorry but in the second in the third book in the quartet you get answers to those questions so i don't think i said this when we were actually recording but i told joe i was I was going to just skim the rest of the series because I've read them all before. And then I just got really ensconced. And so I read number two and number three, uh, which are Gathering Blue and The Messenger. And I started number four, Sun. They're still fantastic, by the way. And it's interesting to me to remember that. So there's seven years between The Giver and Gathering Blue. And you don't get any concrete answers in Gathering Blue. Gathering Blue takes place in a society... It's like a complementary, but not the same, right? Yeah, it's it's two years after the story of The Giver, which you only really figure out when you read the third book. So it's two years after the story of The Giver, and it's a parallel society. So some kind of ruin has happened that has affected a bunch of communities, and they have all approached this dystopian time in different ways. Ah, uh, okay. And so in Gathering Blue... It's a really impoverished society, but the people are mostly left to their own devices, except for sort of a class of artists who are kind of being kept captive because the idea is that they will be able to tell the future. And if the guardian class can kind of keep them in one place, they can kind of dictate what that future is going to look like. Hmm. I'm guessing that goes well. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So that society is happening alongside. And then at the very end of that book, a stranger from another community comes and you find out there's this violence that underpins the seemingly sort of poor but generally fine society everyone lives in. There's a violence that underpins it that you find out when this member from another community comes. So that's when you find out about this other village. And there's a throwaway line there where you find out about a young person with blue eyes who lives in that other community, which if you're just reading those two, you might be like, I wonder if that guy's chill, but you don't know. And then in the Mm -hmm. third book, you find out about the village, which is the community this other man has come from. And it's a community that has taken in the people who have been rejected from all of these other communities. So in Gathering Blue, anybody with a disability is removed from the society. So you find out that they've been able to seek haven in the village, just like Jonas does. He finds haven in the village, as does Gabe. 
and Jonas becomes their leader. So that book takes place like six years on. Okay. And it's a metaphor for the importance of valuing refugees and people who come from the outside. The community's trying to build a wall. It's pretty great in a <laughs> Trumpian context. And then in the fourth book, and I think the fourth book is actually my favorite and the most interesting of the non-giver books, because the fourth book circles all the way back and it takes place in the community at the same time as Jonas from the perspective of Gabriel's birth mother. Right. And she's looking for Gabriel, right? Yes, because she... (laughs) This is another thing that resonated with me. She goes into labor with her first product. Yeah, I know. And when she's 14... And there's a problem in the delivery, and she ends up having to deliver the product by cesarean section. Heavens forbid. Oh, yeah, no. Those of us who give babies, give birth to babies by C-section are horrible failures of human beings. <laughs> Just be clear. And so she gets kicked out of the birth mother. Like she's, You're supposed to have three babies. They kick her out after the first one, and she goes to work in the fish, fish hatchery, I think. And so the problem is that moment of trauma builds this kind of emotional connection to the baby that is not supposed to exist because her birth was longer. So the things that they do to disconnect the woman from the birth process don't last. And as she's leaving, she asks what happened to her if her failure in her body damaged the baby. And the person says, no, he's okay. Instead of no, it's okay. So now she knows the gender of this baby and she has this sort of emotional connection built in trauma. And so she wants to find him. So I, I'm only, I've only just restarted that, so I'm not really sure. I don't know where it goes yet. But what's interesting about the collect the quartet as a collection of texts is that it's not like Jonas is this singular hero, but that resistance takes a number of different forms in a number right. of different communities. And the only way the people who resist can succeed is if they can find other people mm-hmm. to resist alongside them. Right, like you can't be one person and overtake overthrow a society like this. You can either escape like Jonas does, or you can band together with other people to make something better. Yeah, and I think one of the things that I really like about that too is that it almost undercuts this idea that we've seen in so many of these more adventure dystopian texts, where it's like one person yes. will break the system. Like it's yes. this chosen individual with all of the right magical components who will come in and change the way of life for everybody. And to me, that's always created this weird, and I don't know if it's accurate, but I fear that it creates this weird sense of entitlement and Mm -hmm. fantasy in Mm -hmm. readers that you could be that special child. Or that if you're not that special child, there's no point in bothering. Yeah, you are the Neville of this Harry Potter book. (laughs) You do not get the story. Harry Potter gets it. (laughs) I agree with you completely. I think that it's one of my great frustrations with a lot of these books is, yeah, it's this sort of, and often, especially when there's a female protagonist, she very rarely ever has like other women who resist alongside her. Like this sort of, I don't know, Highlander approach to storytelling that there can be only one. And I don't think it's, if your message is about resisting authority, if your message is about challenging authoritarianism, I'm not sure it's helpful to pretend that people do that alone. Yeah, no. Call me crazy. (laughs) Yeah, especially when these texts invariably end up positioning people as finding an alternative sense of community. Like, Mm -hmm. they often end up aligning with rebels, or they Mm -hmm. have to create their own separate army. But they're inevitably always the person in charge of it, as Mm -hmm. though that kind of thing wouldn't be happening organically in other ways with other people, or that there aren't other roles to be played in the quote-unquote revolution. 
Yes, and that's what that's why I like the quartet because we get all these different stories and we get a coming together of the people who can sort of see more. There's ne- there's never just one of them and no one of them gets is capable of overturning the system as they experience it. It's only when this narrative comes together. The bad side of the quartet is that once you've read it, the ambiguity of the first one is lost. And it's funny because as someone who at 11 was absolutely convinced that Jonas was dead, and then to find out many years later, I might add, that he's definitely super alive. Yeah, I don't... It's funny, I I wish you could have both. No, I don't love it as much either. I wish you could have both. I guess maybe what I wish is that we never met Jonas again. I would love a quartet where we just read the stories of these different people. Mm-hmm. And the ways in which they intersect could still be there without necessarily having to tie up Jonas's story quite so neatly. Yeah, it's interesting. I, so on this read, the things that had bothered me originally didn't bother me as much. But the thing that I disliked, if I can say that there's any one thing, is the sort of magical element that if you leave the community Mm. that the memories will just organically be dispelled because to me when you read the giver like the character the giver talking about his relationship to rosemary who we Mm -hmm. eventually discover was his daughter and that Mm -hmm. was one of the reasons you're meant to infer that it didn't work because he was reticent or he, he approached it differently because he had a familial connection to her. Mm-hmm. But I always got the sense that the memories that she gave back to the community occurred because she was released, i.e. Mm-hmm. because she died. Mm-hmm. I don't love this idea that like in death, memories will suddenly be dispersed among the community, but I didn't mind it as much if it meant that it was like you have to die in order for yeah. that to happen because yeah. to me that suggests that there is no way out for Jonas like mm-hmm. for his plan to succeed unless his only goal is to save Gabriel from dying mm-hmm. is that he has to die like yep. the text to me is very clear in that regard so I don't love a I don't love the idea of just the memories being dispersed back but also I don't love this idea that oh okay well I guess it's all sort of for nothing then if he does survive. So in the third book, you get a suggestion that change has happened in Jonas's original community. Several years after he arrives at the village, a boat kind of pulls up and (laughs) there are boats in Jonas's community, right? Because they talk about how the people who get to work on the boats get to see more. And there's this whole thing about, well, do they just see more like... A birthplace and a nurture or like is society actually different and it's like well you shouldn't wonder about things like that blah 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 anyway yeah there's never i mean that's i think one of the things that i love about the novel is that it's never really clear no are they in a dome like are they yeah. isolated like yeah. how is it that people don't have a greater sense of what exists beyond because there's no you know there is no metaphorical wall or anything like that but i love that idea right yeah and there's got to be a dome because of the weather right but yeah so this boat one day I don't know what the nautical term is for pulling up, but a boat pulls up. (laughs) It sashays into port. (laughs) And someone unloads the giver's books and they're addressed to Jonas. So there's an idea that something has changed, but what? Because you could read that both ways. You could read that like, oh, the community knows that Jonas is okay and they're sending him something. Or you could read it like, uh, they realized that even letting the giver have books was not good. Yeah, <laughs> so like now they the books are gone completely. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah. I like that. I like that we don't quite know. 
Ah, see, I love the ambiguity. As an I adult now, I love this idea that there's different ways to read it, to infer it, to process it. I think this book lends itself so much to that open-endedness yes. because really, even as you're reading it, Lowry is very clear about setting up parameters and regulations but even as you're going through it you realize there's still so much that you don't know because your protagonist is a 12 year old boy who doesn't have access to all of the things like he doesn't have the answers that we would be seeking as adults and that's another important reason i think why it matters that he's young because yes you would expect that i mean if you got to have a full adolescence more people would rebel right because that's what happens in adolescence so it makes sense that they don't allow adolescence to take place because adolescence is when you would question all of that stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, some people do go on to vote conservative, but some people take that rebellious streak that they gain in their adolescence, like through their lives. So it makes a lot of sense that they don't get to have that. Maybe this is a good time to transition to talk about the film. Okay. <laughs> in this episode, we don't talk about the adaptation. We just forget that it even exists. (laughs) Which you should do. Don't rent it. Anyway, okay, play the trailer. (laughs) From great suffering came a solution. Communities. Injected. Serene, beautiful places where disorder became harmony. Do you know how to fly those? Absolutely. Do you get to fly to the edge? Oh, yeah. What's past there? Don't know. We're not allowed to fly past that. Let's go. It's against the rules, Jonas. They're called books. Hello. Uh, My name... I know who you are. Who are you? The giver. When the elders need guidance, I provide wisdom. Using memories of the past, our world was different. There was more. More? Much more. Right. You'll see them all in time. All colors, all differences. Our people chose to do away with emotions. Those morning injections take them away. When people have the freedom to choose, they choose wrong. Tomorrow morning, skip your injection. I've been doing it for months. What do you feel? He's not usually like this. I'm surprised you're not more worried about him. I would be. Bring up Jonas's activity. He's inquisitive. You should know better than anyone. The way things look and the way things are are very different. Watch. That's my father. There is no way for me to prepare you for the truth. Okay, so The Giver is a film that it was a long gestating project. They planned to bring it to the screen a number of times, and this was, as you and I discussed offline, this is a Jeff Bridges passion project. He had originally envisioned that his father would play the giver and that he would help to usher it to the screen. That didn't happen for a number of different reasons that I don't care about. I mean, the main reason is that he died. (laughs) Is that the main reason? I think this was a genuinely difficult text for people to think about how it would take place on screen yes i agree i don't think they should have tried no and i completely agree with you i think this is one they should have honestly just left alone Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so they brought it to the screen in 2014. As we mentioned off the top, it was adapted by two different men, Michael Mitnick and Robert B. Wide, and it's directed by Philip Noyce. And Noyce has a pretty storied career as a director, but it's mostly action films, Mm -hmm. as well as political dramas. He does a lot of TV now. Is he the guy who made Rabbit Proof Fence? He is, yeah. And he did like The Quiet American, which is a really good later day spy film. Um, Okay, so the film has this crazy star-studded cast. It's ridiculous. Jeff Bridges is the giver. Meryl Streep is our antagonist, the chief elder. And this is a very beefed up role to accommodate the fact that they got an actress of her caliber. Yes, they've put her in a role that didn't need to exist. Yeah, exactly. It's one of the many bad decisions that they decide is that this film needs a villain. Mm -hmm. And it should be one person as opposed to this idea of a uniform community being the real villain. Mm Mm-hmm. Our main character, Jonas, is played by Brenton Thwaites. He's an Australian, and honestly, he's atrocious. Yeah, yeah, he's pretty I've never seen him in a role that he has succeeded in, <laughs> and this is a case of failing upwards where he just keeps getting larger, more expensive projects that he sucks in. Yeah. So if you're a fan of his, I apologize. Yes, he's very attractive. No, that does not mean he should get to star in a lot of major motion pictures. No, it does not. The parents are played by Alexandra Skarsgård and Katie Holmes. And this is another departure because they've decided that the parents need to have kind of like valences. So Jonas's dad is sort of a good guy and Jonas's mom is sort of a bad guy. Utterly yeah. unnecessarily. Yeah, so Katie Holmes, I mean, like, they don't even have character names. It's just father and mother. But mother, in this case, is clearly... I don't think she's in cahoots with the chief elder. Like, you're meant to infer that she's brought in to help rope Jonas back in line. It's more like she's a high-level civil servant and she has bought into what the chief elder is doing. Yes. It's more that than that she is actually actively evil, but she's definitely on the side of evil. Right, yeah. She's actively working to keep the status quo, the collective experience, intact. And then Jonas's two friends are Fiona, played by Odea Rush, who we saw in Darlin'. She Mm -hmm. plays the best friend in Darlin'. Dumplin'. And then Asher. In the book, he's kind of like his adventurous, rebellious, jokester, prankster friend. And here he's played by Cameron Monaghan, and he... I don't even know how to describe what they've done with this character. He's not interesting at all. So he just becomes a bit of an obstacle that Jonas has to get around. And he fires drones. That's his job. He is a yes, drone he's pilot. he's a drone fighter. Because that's a thing that the book needed. I read the book and I was like, you know what? I really wish this had more drones in it. Yeah, definitely needs more drones. Yeah. And there's also a romance that's introduced in the film with so Fiona. And it becomes a big, big, big part of the film. So one of the other big challenges that I think the film mistakenly makes, to come back to your drone idea, is that they turn this into like a high-tech, futuristic world. So we're constantly given extreme long shots, like establishing shots of what the community looks like, and it looks like a floating island in the sky. Yes. She makes no sense at all. No sense at all. Like, it's crazy futuristic. 
one of the things that it's pretty clear in the giver the book is that society has been rebuilt after some kind of a disaster yes and what you recognize as you read the quartet is that this disaster has afflicted many communities and that each has found its own way through but they are all relatively primitive in terms of technology as would befit a rebuilding that is not what has happened here no it's like they overcompensated by leaning into technology and they've also made the community approximately 10 times bigger oh gosh yes i completely forgot about that yeah it's like it's a metropolis not a community yeah yeah they took away this idea that there could be other societies and instead just turned it into a mega society Mm -hmm. like they're using their technology to police people Mm -hmm. so it doesn't feel free in the way that the book does one of the things that works so well in the book is this sense that people are just going about and they're living their lives but there's that hint of malice and that uncertainty like oh but don't they recognize why these elements are bad if they act out there's an immediate response on the speakerphone Mm -hmm. that publicly chastises them so that they fall back in line Mm -hmm. and here it just kind of looks like people are going to work like there's a scene it's just such a ridiculous display where Jonas and Fiona are meant to be falling in love and he takes her to the top of what looks like a giant sphere and they take trays and they slide down them because of course he's reliving the memory that the giver has given him about the slide so he wants Fiona to feel that and it just turns into this a completely unnecessary one minute special effects extravaganza (laughs) as they're going down this thing but like no one bats an eye like in the book they would have gotten into so much trouble people would have been freaking out yep and in the film People are just walking by, like, barely giving them a glance. That's part of the problem is that because they've decided to shoehorn in this love story. And folks, it is shoehorned. (laughs) This is not one of those, like, hey, Hollywood, we need these two attractive people to mate. It's very much, well, what else do we have in this if we don't have love? Yes. So because they insist on doing this, Jonas has to be in some way trying to get close to... Fiona and the way that he does that in the film is that he shares aspects of his training which he's not supposed to do but what's interesting is that in the book he's also not supposed to share his training but in the book he's prevented from sharing his training by the fact that no one can understand him Mm -hmm. he tries right he has these moments where he tries to get Asher and Fiona to see color he tries to get them to imagine emotion he tries to get them to imagine period And those experiences in the book are further isolating for Jonas. He recognizes that because he knows what he knows, connection with anyone within the community is impossible, which the giver has warned him, right? The giver has said, like, I tried being married. Doesn't work out very well because you you will perceive the world completely differently. Yeah. And that's why he forms that bond with Gabriel, because Gabriel isn't indoctrinated in the same way. Like, Gabriel doesn't have the defenses. And he can share, through touch, he's able to share memories with Gabriel. Like, that's how he calms Gabriel at night, right? So so they have this strong bond. They have this shared experience. In the film, he's able to basically share what he's learning. Not Not fully, but he's able to share it with Fiona enough that there's this idea that he'll go back for her someday right? That like, they'll be married. And it's absurd within the context of the world that they've built. 
the whole reason why Jonas has to leave is because there's no other way to share what he believes they need in order to be fully human. Yes. But the film undermines that entirely by having him slowly opening Fiona's eyes to the world. Yes. Because it suggests that if he just stayed and spoke quietly with everyone when no one was looking, right. eventually they would all be able to see a color, right? Well, absurd. Yes. But I think even more problematically, the film misrepresents the purpose of the book. Well, yeah. And it changes the narrative so that, well, no, like I'm speaking explicitly around this idea that everything circles around love in the film. Yep. Whereas in the book, the idea is not that love will save the freaking day. It's that only Jonas's capacity to help people feel that they need to remember. Yes. He needs to open their eyes to help them understand what they've given up. There's this idea of giving up, which is why it's freaking called the giver. (laughs) It's not love that's central. It's empathy. It's understanding. It's shared history. It's community. To boil that down to two teenagers making out is just so friggin' typical and exhausting. I just can't even... And then it translates into this very traditional, misguided Hollywood notion that in order to wrap this story oh up, god. you can't have something understated. Oh my god. Oh my god. I... So it turns into a giant, ridiculous chase scene. So the chase scene is ridiculous. First of all, it's not a bicycle, it's a motorcycle. Yep. Second of all, because they're on apparently a floating island he has to sail off the cliff and basically fly on the motorcycle yep then asher with his drone strikes has to chase him down then he manages to pick him up by a tractor beam which i believe i messaged you sure did this is where the messages started to go into all caps territory people (laughs) i believe what i wrote was is that a tractor beam with no punctuation yes it is then he gets dropped into a river from the tractor beam and that's asher's way of being sort of he'll survive the drop into the river because he's been with a child with a child because he's been told he has to destroy jonas that that's his those are his orders but he has mercy on him and only drops him in a freezing cold rapid river Right, because at this point, Meryl Streep has just gone full mustache-twirling villain mode. It's like, we're not even trying to recover him. He just needs to politely and quietly be taken care of. And you're like, ugh, it's not a film noir. And so at this point, I texted Joe to say, okay, Jonas is outside of the community. He is now experiencing winter weather. Why are there still 25 minutes left in this movie? (laughs) Yeah, this movie does not know when to wrap (laughs) things up. It just keeps going. Yeah, because then you find out that both the giver and Fiona have been taken in for interrogation to find out what they know. And I guess Fiona, does Fiona ask to be released or does she, is the release her punishment? The release is her punishment, but she's okay with it because her eyes have now been opened. Right. And, you know, she knows about love and Jonas has taught her these things. It's somehow meant to be this empowering, uplifting kind of message. Instead, it's be right back barfing forever. Yeah, it's, <laughs> uh, it's a choice. And luckily, just in the nick of time, as Fiona is about to be released, Jonas sails through what appears to be some sort of force field, which, by the way, also doesn't make sense. Because if no. they are a floating island... Where is the force field field and why? Mm -hmm. But he sails through the force field on 
Is he on the sled when he goes through the force field, or does he? I believe so, yeah. And going through the force field allows all the memories to flood back to the community, which, because for some reason it's Jonas's father doing Fiona's release. Yeah, which Which also doesn't make sense, because everybody has really confined roles. Why would a nurturer be doing Fiona's release? Yeah. And he remembers, I guess all of a sudden he remembers that he loves his kids, even though he doesn't and can't, whatever, it doesn't matter. Anyway, all these memories come flooding back. He doesn't release her. And then Jonas and Gabriel appear to arrive at some sort of Christmas party. Yeah, with the suggestion being that (laughs) Fiona will come for them, or that something has changed. And that's the film's attempt at ambiguity. So It's like, oh, okay, well, we're just not going to reunite the lovers, but the implication being that they will. It's so bad. It's really bad. Because even if you aren't willing to give an ambiguous ending like the one of the book, which I sort of knew when I sat down to watch the movie, there was no way they were going to go with the ambiguous ending. No, no, because it it doesn't satisfy. No, but honestly, uh, what I assumed was going to happen was that they would crib the ending. They would sort of patch something on from Gathering Blue. Like you would see him finding the village of accepting people and it would be saccharine and annoying because you wouldn't really know the struggle that had gone into it or Mm -hmm. the struggle that went into that community existing. But that's what I assumed would happen. Yeah. Instead of what is, appears to be a beautiful upper middle class home yeah. in rural somewhere. Yeah. Nicely appointed for Christmas and obviously entirely contemporary to our moment in our society. Which mm. then the question is, is this society meant to just be floating above like us right now? Yeah. What? Where? Who? When? I hated it. <laughs> I hated it so much. <laughs> And I, I don't uh, know if I hated it independent of the book or if I just hate the adaptation, but I hated it. Yeah, because I feel like one of the potential criticisms that people could have of the way that we do this is that we always talk about the book first yeah. as though it is the principal text, yeah. which is often true. It's the thing that comes first and then the movie is made on it. And we've acknowledged many times that there are choices that need to be made when you're moving a text from book form from a written word into a visual medium such as cinema or television and we've acknowledged that sometimes the point is different between the two texts we've Mm -hmm. acknowledged that they are separate works of art and sometimes they're doing different things i think maybe my problem with the giver as a film if i'm trying to look at it apart from the book is i don't know what the point of it was if the point is different than the point of the book what was it the pressing issue for me is actually what distinguishes this interpretation of a dystopian future from every other depiction because by making the choices that they've done so the move to make it more technological the move to shoehorn in the love affair and make it all about love to me is very similar to pretty much every other dystopian text Like the thing that distinguishes The Giver as a book is that it doesn't traffic in those kinds of Mm -hmm. tropes. Mm -hmm. So it has a dystopian element, but I would actually call it almost a soft dystopia. Because the focus is not, yes, they're killing people. And that's scary. And that's unnerving. But it's not a thriller, right? No. And the movie is a thriller. Yeah, the movie makes the mistake of becoming not just a thriller, but an action film, Mm -hmm. a high-tech action film. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, it just resembles every other film of its ilk. Like, Mm -hmm. there's nothing that sets it apart. I think the most shocking to me is that Jeff Bridges so badly wanted to make this movie Mm -hmm. because he loves the source material. And I just can't believe that he would look at this 
finished result and say, yes, this is the giver that we want to bring. Like, this is the cinematic vision of Lois Lowry's award-winning book. It's kind of mind-boggling. I think what we've seen here is this idea of not trusting audiences, really dumbing it down, making it more action-y, making it more love affair And then the other big thing is really saying, we don't think that this is interesting enough, so we're going to populate it with big, big, big names. It's interesting how at every level, the film decides to be more XXX extreme about Mm -hmm. what's happening. Here's a really subtle example. In the book, everyone in the society takes a pill every morning. The pills are delivered. They take their pills. Their pills are what sustain the society's compliance. The fact that they willingly take those pills every day, it's part of how we know the society is deeply compliant, right? Yes. In the film version, it's really subtle, but in the film version, it's a daily injection. Yes. Like, it's just a little more aggressive, a little more controlled, a little bit less people being in control of their own compliance. Yeah, there's nothing subtle about it either. No, exactly. That was just one of the many very small changes. Very small, completely unnecessary. And I'm still not sure why beyond... I mean, if we want to talk about unnecessary extras, you you didn't even mention in your cast list that there's... Yes. (laughs) Yeah, so the Taylor Swift of it all. So we know that Rosemary is the giver who went before, or the receiver who went before, and that she was the giver's daughter, and that the loss of her was deeply traumatizing to the giver, that it was deeply traumatizing to the community. But it's not enough for the film to let us just know that that story exists. Instead, Mm -hmm. we have to have holographic Taylor Swift there to show us exactly what those moments looked like. For what reason? I do not know. You would think, I mean, you would think getting to see her would add some sort of emotional complexity to her relationship with Jeff Bridges and explain some of his history, but it doesn't. No, it does not. To be honest, I actually find Jeff Bridges and the portrayal of the titular giver so disappointing. to be one of the weakest points of this entire film. I don't like, understand for a man who loved it as much as he loved it. Mm-mm. I don't understand. I read an article where he fought tooth and nail against them aging up the characters in the first place. Oh, yeah, because we haven't talked about it. So in this film, they're resolutely 18 years old when brenton thwaites made this movie he was 24 it's standard we've talked about this a number of times but when you're talking about a book that is so singularly focused on particular ages Mm -hmm. and having that cusp of young adultness and really there's nothing in this that required them to be aged up except that you can't have 12 year olds falling in love Yep, that's totally it. They had to do that in service of the love story, not in service of some larger thematic end. And apparently Jeff Bridges fought them on it tooth and nail, and it came down to they were going to recast him. He would have to walk away from the project entirely. And I read in this interview, it was at, um, it wasn't an interview, it was a panel discussion at Comic-Con right before the film came out. And he said, I have been trying to make this movie my entire career. I couldn't imagine it coming to screen without me. Right. And then there was like this big hanging butt in the air. Yeah, like, I'm not going <laughs> to trash talk it because I wanted this to get made. I'm literally but... on the junket for it right now. But... <laughs> Obviously, it sucks. Donkey yeah. balls. And I think if he was fighting tooth and nail about the aging up, I suspect that means he was fighting tooth and nail about the script itself. I imagine so. Right. Yeah. 
I mean, visually, this film doesn't work for me. Like, I think if this film had have been adapted in the 90s, we wouldn't have gotten drones and holograms no. and no. all of these other nonsense visuals no. that come after the fact because of things like Hunger Games yep. and Maze Runner and all these other you can see the thumbprint of all of those dystopian visions in film on this movie, which is something of a tragedy because The Giver, as a book, came out in 93. You can see echoes of The Giver yes, in all yeah. of those texts. It goes the opposite way. <laughs> it goes the opposite way. And, and it's almost like, whether it's the screenwriter's or the director, or, or a combination, a combination of, both. of both, or the concept of the proje- production that actually made it into production. Yeah. But no one in this process trusted the source material. No, no. Which no, is like, I don't think they trusted the book's audience. No. And I don't think that they trusted that audiences who were unfamiliar with the book would be able to figure out what was happening. Which to me is something of a tragedy because the book that sold 10 million copies, you don't trust that source material. And I get that like, I mean, ultimately, I think Joe and I, you've both, you and I have both come down on the end of like, this is an unadaptable book. Yes. It's a book that is at its core philosophical it's not plot driven the plot is slight it's supposed Mm -hmm. to be slight it's a brief book too it's a brief book we're not reading about plot we're reading about the role of empathy understanding history and community like that's what it's about and you can't adapt that effectively there was a way into this project to think of the quartet as a whole and maybe try to tell the story of all of these communities finding their way through i mean even that would be difficult but at least you'd have more plot you'd have you know four plots to sort of work on Mm -hmm. you wouldn't need to tack on 25 minutes of action at the end (sighs) yes that was when i just started to get real sweary too so mad yeah well and as we've talked about a number of times before this did not work. No. So this film cost $25 million to make and it only made 45. So it wasn't a colossal flop like some of the other ones that we've talked about, but it wasn't a success. Like we're not talking about The Giver 2 anytime soon. And that's worth talking about too, because in as much as I'm having a hard time divorcing myself from my love of the book in my judgment of the film, it's not like film audiences were like, oh, this is great. You're the one who's off, Bren. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this wasn't embraced by a new generation of no, people it didn't who, and resonate. then prompted them to go back and rediscover the book or anything. No, honestly, it comes off as a, a bit of a money grab. Yep. Like we're trying to capitalize on this known property, but we didn't give it any kind of consideration or thought as to, hey, the people who like this book are not going to be impressed with this film. And what the final product ended up delivering is just the same old junk that we've been seeing from a bunch of other franchises. And honestly, done better. Yep. It's like you're coming into this saying, okay, if I like the book, I hate this movie, which we both do. Mm -hmm. Or you're not familiar with the book, and it just looks like a run-of-the-mill dystopian garbage fest with hot people. (laughs) Like, that's not enough no it's not enough no it's not i mean can we all just accept now finally that it's not enough no because we have too many other texts like this to discuss later (laughs) oh yeah that's right okay (laughs) (laughs) this is why we rotate back and forth between different types of ya so that we don't end up having to do too many of these conversations every other week can you imagine trying to host like a ya dystopia podcast be horrible what a horrible project we would have to have different standards <laughs> different goals <laughs> oh lord help us all um okay anything else that you need to get off your chest 
No. Okay. This movie made me sad. It did make me miss, uh, made me miss pieces of April era Katie Holmes. I used to really enjoy seeing her on screen, and now I do not. (laughs) I feel like you and I saw pieces of April together. We did see pieces of April together. Ah, those were the days. Yeah. That is a great film if people like Katie Holmes, and if you question her ability to act convincingly, (laughs) that is a film that will convince you she does have the chops in the right role. Before Scientology got to her, before she got Tom Cruised. (laughs) Yes, indeed. (laughs) Although I think she's kind of coming back out of it. I hope so. Yeah. In the right role, I find her tremendously charming and likable. Yes. And I get that the character in this was not supposed to be charming and likable, but I was also just so resentful that... And of course, right? When you've got to make one parent the sort of bad and one parent the sort of good, of course the mom's the bad guy. Of course. Of course. (sighs) My fun fact before we move on to Bingo Mm -hmm. is that Alexander Skarsgård, who plays father, Mm -hmm. the reason that he took this role on is because he wanted to act with Meryl Streep really badly. (laughs) He never was on the scene. And they literally do not share any scenes together because (laughs) half of her scenes were filmed while she was doing Into the Woods in the UK. And then all of her other scenes have no interaction with him. So I guess they, I don't even know if they're interacting on Big Little Lies. That's amazing. I love that so much. And now he's in a film with her that I'm sure she disavows ever being involved in. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Well, she should disavow that wig. Oh, God. Yeah. At the very least. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay, so uh, why a bingo? Bingo! Not a good bingo. We've only got two slots filled, so we're adding two more today. What have you got? I am going to be annoying, and I'm going to add one that we will see come up over and over again, which is dystopia. I'm going to put dystopia. I'm going to put dystopia. It's reliable. It's reliable. It is its own Mm subgenre. We spend such a lot of time here, might as well get a bingo point for it. Indeed. (laughs) I'm going to add one that I think will similarly get us some points on regular rotation. I'm adding stunt casting. Oh, good one. Yeah, so I'm figuring that this will apply not to the teenage characters, but Meh, parents Swift. parents, or like the Taylor Swifts. Yeah, yeah. Those kinds of cameo drop-ins where you're just like, oh, are you trying to goose us? Because I do vividly remember when this film came out, it was... Taylor Swift's acting debut in a feature film, to which I say, who cares? <laughs> and when the trailer dropped, all the headlines about the trailer were, check out Meryl Streep in The Giver. Yes. Okay. Oh, is she The Giver? No. <laughs> is she the other person? No. Who is she? I thought they were going to when I first heard that. My first assumption was that they had gender swapped The Giver. And there is a change I, I could have gotten behind. I would have been in, really interested to see how something like that worked out, especially because Jeff Bridges is such a colossal disappointment. <laughs> He's just not there. No. The book is inherently all about such a fascinating relationship. It's about an older man and a young child coming to terms with this ridiculous responsibility mm-hmm. that they've been given by this community. Mm-hmm. I can't help but wonder if one of the concerns that resulted in both the aging up as well as fewer scenes and obviously no physical touching was oh, gosh, the I uncomfortable sexualization. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. Because, of course, you can't have a relationship between an older no. man and a young boy no. without someone inferring. Oh, that's the saddest thing I ever heard. Welcome back to Debbie Downerville, population moi. <laughs> 
This was depressing. Yeah. So uh, The Giver, really good. By all indications, the rest of the books are also fairly good. Yes. I think they're all worth reading. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this movie is a big steaming pile of doo-doo. Here's the thing. It'll take you an hour and a half to sit through the movie. Hour and 37 minutes, I think. According to my library app, it only took me an hour and 26 minutes to read the third book in the series. Wow. So which place do you want to invest your time, folks? Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) With that said, if you are the world's biggest giver film adaptation fan. Um, no. And you want to yell at us, you can do that on the Twitters. If you use the hashtag HKHSPod, you'll get both Joe and I. Where can they find you to yell at you individually, Joe? <laughs> you can reach me at B stole my remote, and that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. And if you have some longer diatribe about how great the Giver movie is. <laughs> you can't even say it with a straight face. Because who is this person? I want to meet you. Who is this fictitious person? <laughs> you can email us at hkhspod at gmail.com. And Joe will definitely check that. Yes, because <laughs> Brenna still hasn't figured out the password. I okay. have not. <laughs> Next week, a little bit of a departure. I'm looking forward to it. I have neither read nor watched the text we're doing for next week. We're looking at Every Day by David Leviathan, right? (laughs) I think we said this last time. I think it's Leviathan. Oh, crap. Okay. Do you want me to do it again? (laughs) No, you know what? I like it. it Because I feel like we've repeatedly said Leviathan, which is just not the same thing. Not the same thing. No, you're totally right. Yeah, I'm interested because I think I've read this. But I don't think I've seen the movie, but I have no recollection. Based on the movies that we have watched for this podcast, Netflix is certain I want to watch this movie. It serves it up to me, I would say, every time, pretty much every time I turn on Netflix, it's like, every day? Every day? You want to watch every day? How about now? How about now? How about now? So I'm pretty sure it's directly in the wheelhouse of the other things we've watched. However, that's a for better or for worse kind of situation. So Indeed. (laughs) Yeah. So we shall see. He co-wrote a book with John Green called Will yes. Grayson, Will Grayson, which I quite loved. So um, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm excited. It's, uh, yeah, something a little bit different. So I guess we will see folks next week for a discussion of every day. Yes. And until then, I'll see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen.